as we begin the 2024 presidential campaign, we hear the word inflation in almost every candidate's speech. One issue that is always mentioned is the price of food. Benjamin Lohr spent several years traveling the United States and the world to investigate how the food supply chain works. His book is titled The Secret Life of Groceries, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. He writes that most people shop for groceries with clueless abandon. Benjamin Lohr, as we start talking about your book, The Secret Life of Groceries, can we talk about Len Riles? Yes, absolutely. One of the uh, uh, more wonderful people I met along this journey of writing this book. Lynn was a trucker. I should say Lynn, the woman I call Lynn in the book, it is a pseudonym. I, it's nonfiction. I, I use pseudonyms very rarely, but I thought this was a section where her livelihood could be threatened by the reporting that I was doing. And so I, I gave her that. But so the woman I call Lynn was a long haul trucker um, that, who let me ride along with her in her truck. Uh, and I spent uh, several thousand miles with her crisscrossing the country. Uh, it was quite an honor, a privilege, and it completely destroyed any illusions that I had that I might enjoy that as a as, uh, as a career, I think I walked into that section thinking, "Oh, the life of a long haul trucker. This is uh, this is interesting. This is something I could fantasize about." And I walked out of it with both uh, intense appreciation for the amount of work they do, the amount of skill that they bring to the job, and how. Uh, incredibly difficult that job has been made by the commoditization of trucking as an industry as a whole. Uh, and Lynn's story essentially is that of a woman who um, is working extremely hard for extremely little money. Uh, she was grossing about $120,000 a year through her trucking routes and taking home less than twenty thousand uh, dollars i can't even think about what her hourly rate was for that she was working about 80 hours a week um extremely dedicated knew the industry in and out um but the way that trucking is structured now a lot of the risks that used to be borne by trucking carriers have been transferred to trucking owners through these lease to own agreements at, and Essentially, her paycheck was being just bled by small uh, fees that she would have to pay to the, the the trucking carrier that was preventing her from making much of a living. Where did you find her? Uh, well, you know, that's the, the job of the nonfiction writer is you call somebody and ask them to, if they know anyone who is interesting or has something to tell you about a story, and then they connect you to two people, and then you keep kind of like a little a tree. I found her indirectly through a, a woman named Desiree Washington, who is a, uh, a woman, a uh, female trucker and kind of a, an advocate for, for female truckers. Uh, female truckers make up only about 5% of the industry, but they're extremely vulnerable for a number of reasons. And so I knew that I wanted to kind of like everything that male truckers are extremely vulnerable to, I should say. Um, and, and, but everything that male truckers deal with is amplified in the world of, of female truckers. And it goes right into the way, you know, you might think of trucking as not being a skilled job, but you can't just sit down and get, you don't, you can't just get your CDL 
uh, and sit in a truck, your commercial truck driving license and, and sit in a truck and go out on a route. You have to be trained to do that. And to do that, you have to partner um, with somebody and you drive with them for uh, months. And the part about trucking is you also live in that truck and you're spending all your waking time with that person. So if, if you're a female partnered with a male trainer, you're sleeping in bunk beds four feet away from where you're working all day long. Um, that male trucker is responsible for evaluating your performance. And while I'm sure there are many male trainee trainers who are completely ethical and on the up and up, the situation itself is one that is structured for abuse. You're alone, there's no oversight, and the one person who's kind of the gatekeeper to whether or not you pass this this training uh, evaluation is sleeping directly on top of you uh, in a bunk bed. Um, and so it, it doesn't take much to see all the way that sexual harassment uh, and abuse could slip in there. And every trucker, female trucker that I talked to had horrific stories. So I, I, I knew that I wanted to zero in on a, on a female trucker. And so I, I, I re reached out to Desiree um, and then kind of played telephone <laughs> where you just are connecting yourself through the industry, talking from one person to the next. And then finally I, I met the woman I called Lynn. Why did you want to experience the trucking part of the grocery story? That's a great question. Well, there's two reasons. I think the grocery story is the story of logistics to a large degree, right? If if you look back, Americans used to spend about 40% of our budget on food in the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century to the 20th century. We now spend less than 10%, uh, 8%, right, of our, our budget on food. Lowest number in the world. A huge reason for that shrink is advances in the supply chain, advances in logistics. And trucking, it, that last mile problem, is the heart of logistics in this. Or it's you know, there's a, there's a whole back end to the logistics, but but a very concrete node in the logistics story. Um, so I really wanted to get a front hand view of that. I also was really interested in getting into all these places like distribution centers and warehousing and manufacturing centers, which are typically off limits to a lot of people in the press. And a trucker was a great back door, so I could hitch a ride with a trucker and then walk around these places pretty much unnoticed uh, and and with, with no oversight um, and not on some like official tour. So th that was a side benefit. Um, but really it was I, uh, trucking and logistics was like, is the story in grocery as far as I was concerned. And truckers tell a changing story uh, of that logistics in both the positive side uh, and the negative side. The, the price of food has fallen dramatically because of efficiencies in logistics and a lot of those efficiencies have been born on the back of the trucker uh, at, who has become kind of a commodified part in this scheme and very much deemed a replaceable part. Um, so, you know, you, you're used to thinking about the pieces of the truck, like the tire tread being a replaceable part. The trucker himself or herself is also a replaceable part in the uh, the mentality of the truck carriers. Uh, turnover rate in that industry varies from when I was reporting from something like 97 to 113%. So that means that every person in the trucking industry is or is being replaced uh, on a more than annual basis, which, you know, what, it's pretty cra crazy numbers to put that into, you know, what year, what year did you ride in the truck and from what city to what city? How far did how far did you go and how many days? 
That's a good question. Um, so I was in a couple different trucks with with uh, a woman I call Lynn. I was in her truck for about a week. Um, and it was picked. She picked. You know, it's hard to intercept the trucker because they're on the move and they can't stop for you because they got to make their money. And 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 downtime is dead time. Is no, you're not making any money. So I intercepted her. I think in South Carolina. And I got off the truck in Milwaukee, but in the that was not a straight shot. We didn't go from South Carolina to Milwaukee. Uh, we kind of crisscrossed all over the place um, in that week. Um, you know, hit hit four or five distribution centers, dropping off and picking up um, different different loads of. She she was driving a reefer truck, which is a refrigerated truck. Um, so that's like where meat or you know, we were carrying a load of whipped cream for for part of the for the trip um and uh yeah i mean it, it by the time we hit milwaukee area i had planned on staying longer but i every inch of my body wanted out of that experience <laughs> it was it was it was a it was a hard it was a hard life how much regulation federal state regulation is there for truckers well, there is a great deal of regulation in terms of telling truckers when they can and cannot drive. Um, this is a great deal of contention, bone of contention in the life of a trucker because there's a lot that happens uh, on their schedule that's out of their control. And there's federal rules that prevent truckers from driving too much for obvious safety reasons. And I should say that trucking is an extraordinarily dangerous profession. Um, it's always in the, the, the list of top 10 dangerous professions. Trucking is always right up there with like deep sea fishing and timber. Um, it, it is um, uh, quite quite easy to get yourself killed as a trucker. And it's quite easy to, to hurt someone else when you're carrying 87,000 pounds um, behind you. So um, there's a lot of regulation in terms of like creating standards for both um, when a trucker can drive, can't drive, places they can, can't drive. Um, there's a lot of regulation over the taxing of those loads. So if you're a trucker, you have to pay different taxes based on the different states that you pass through. And, and that involves using an accountant. You're, you're probably not doing that by yourself. And that's just another fee that you're kind of legally mandated to use. Or your, your carrier will probably demand that they, you use their in-house uh, both attorney and accountant uh, to do the to do to, to kind of manage that fee, and that's a, a again a place where you don't really have quite free market negotiating power to choose the person who might best serve you. Um, where it's underregulated, I think, is that really none of those regulations are looking out for the interests of the trucker. They're they're usually looking out for the interests of the carrier and for us uh, as consumers and and the fellow denizens of the road um you know keeping us safe but the trucker um like i said so much of their routes are out of their control they get to a place where they're picking up a load and often will be forced to sit in their truck for four six hours at a time while the distribution center is preparing that load or 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 getting ready to load it on and they're just sitting there kind of uh, unpaid labor um, in their truck and their clock in terms of like allowable driving time is ticking. So they're not getting paid for that time, but they're also being treated as if they're driving for safety reasons. And, and, and that can, you know, obviously pinch them 
quite hard. You you say that uh, Lynn Riles didn't have a home and that she spent her whole life in this truck. Uh, and she only made, I think you say in the book, $17,000 when you wrote this. Why did she do it? And by the way, describe her. Would you describe her personally, what she looked like? I know she was very tall. And what you learned yep. from her is why she wanted to do this. Well, it's a great question. And I think it gets to the heart of what's getting offered in this transaction. And and it gets to the heart of the romance of being a trucker. Uh, and there are some very romantic aspects to it. You're alone on the road observing America, sunrises and sunsets. And there is a sense that when you get offered a lease to own agreement that you're kind of uh, independent operator who owns their own truck. Now, this is not true, in fact, because it's a lease to own agreement that in almost every case that I encountered, you do not end up paying off. And I think that's just not my anecdotal experience, but people who um, look at this um, in a more comprehensive fashion find these lease to own agreements extremely abusive. Um, but it's true in the mind and people can believe that they are an independent operator and that they're master of their own destiny without that necessarily being true. And that in that kind of gap, um, there's a really romantic like people like trucking can be a lifestyle it can be something that you do because you don't quite fit into a nine-to-five job situation and you want that freedom of the road i mean you are physically going all over the place um and so the truckers that i met that were happy and 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 that is a minority a lot of the truckers i met and like we said those turnover numbers indicate that speaking with their with actions they're leaving jobs um and and getting those jobs refilled um, but they viewed it as a lifestyle. They viewed it as as, as something that that um, wasn't necessarily. It didn't financially make sense. Um, and also, I, I, got, I need to caveat that th- I'm talking right now about OTR trucking, which is the long haul truckers who bring um, things. Trucking is such a vast uh, industry. It's a huge industry. It is the majority the largest employer in the majority of states and there are, it's so fractioned so there are truckers who are just involved in long-haul moves like housing moves totally different industry not part of the grocery logistics scheme and actually um can be quite well paying uh there's truckers that are involved in local moves so just doing like routes in in cities again totally divorced from what i'm talking about and um you can be quite well paid go back like otr to, trucking go back to lynn Razo. i want you to describe yeah. her okay uh lynn is she's a, a big woman in every sense of the word she's big stature she's big bone she's big voice big personality um, you know, she greets me with like uh, a handshake, immediately looks me up and down uh, and kind of like takes the proverbial piss out of me by saying like, hey, um, you know, if you're going to be riding along with me, we need to get you a, 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 a Gatorade bottle to, to pee in. Um, and and just like she's a, a big talker um, and, you know. I, I think a lot of that big personality was linked directly to her isolation. It, it's simultaneously a place where you have very few opportunities to communicate. So when you do, it's um, 
you know, you, you have this outsized personality over the CB, you have this outside personality at truck stops, and then there's these giant expanses when you're just by yourself alone in the truck. Um, so when I was with her, she was constantly talking to me, um, just filling up that cab with conversation because I, I didn't get the sense that she had that opportunity very often. You say she was 6'2"? Yeah. Yes, she was a big woman. You said that she um, didn't have a tooth in her mouth and that she had bad dentures. That's true. Uh, but that that's, that's yes. She, uh, she was uh, not the picture of, I mean, look, she was a, a woman full of, full of contradictions. Um, I, I, I have a, like a lot of respect for her. She was trying to eat right and was trying to, had like, the cooler full of quail eggs that a friend had given her, but she was stuck in a job where basically the only place you're allowed to eat is the gas stations and the truck stops of, of the world. And that's not a place where you're going to find that much healthy food. Um, and so she, she was living a hard life, but yeah, big, big six to, um, and, and I have to say it's something that her, she was a big imposing woman that you would not think would be intimidated by anything. She didn't take guff from anyone, but when she would talk about walking around a truck yard at night, she would talk about how she would have to hide her hair under her baseball cap, puff up her chest so she looked like a man from afar away because she didn't feel safe walking through there without um with without that as a woman like it, that it was a dangerous for her to just appear as a woman and, and she felt very threatened and this is someone that you couldn't imagine ever feeling threatened now when what were the years that you researched this book i know it came out a couple of years ago but when did you research it how from when to when yeah so this was a pro i worked on this book for about five years from about uh 215 to 220 um or you know 220 is when it came out so i would put it to bed a little before that where, um where do you live i live in brooklyn new york i was living in san francisco for part of that time um and then you know i spent about uh, a good chunk of time four or five four months in thailand um traveling with thai fishermen and you know each stage of the book i, I follow a small entrepreneur a woman named julie boucher who's has a brand called a uh, condiment called slosso which is fairly delicious um, kind of coleslaw alternative. And, and I was kind of following her journey to getting that product on the shelf. And so, you know, a lot of these stories were stories with long arcs. So what happens to Julie in her journey to get Slossa on the shelf is not something that you could figure out in, in the course of three or four months. It was something that really only her success or failure in that industry was a five-year kind of arc story. So I wasn't with her all the time, but I would check in with her and email with her and, um, and then spend kind of some anchor periods with her where I would get a better sense of, of what was going on. And I'm happy to say this loss is live and well and, and now on and Wegmans, um, which she, she, she's flur. She's, she's, she kind of made it through the pandemic, which was quite a difficult bottleneck. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, July even, 4th on your mind, even though you give us some interesting statistics in the first couple of, pages of your book you say the book is not about statistics but i do want to go over a couple of these you say that in any supermarket 
On average, there are 32,000 individual products up to the possibility of 120,000 in the big stores. Is there any way to describe that and why that why those numbers are so large? Yeah, I mean, the supermarket of today is predicated on the just options and the continuous availability of those options. And it, it's it's a miracle. I mean, that's why I call it the subtitle of the book is the dark miracle of the American supermarket. And we just have the so many different product options at our fingertips um to answer your specific question like why are they getting why why so many um you know it wasn't always the case if you go back in time to the kind of the general store this is like mid uh 19th century supermarkets had a very small skew amounts uh they didn't have skews at that point uh and it, it really wasn't until 1930 where they kind of reinvent their business model uh, around a volume game where, where a gentleman named Michael Cullen opens the, what's the first supermarket in Queens uh, and essentially has this revelation that if he makes the store footprint bigger, he can save money on warehousing. He will locate it off the main street, which allows him to save real estate costs. And he can put more items in the store, which he can then reduce the cost of to sell them at a lower uh, lower margin. Um, and that will excite customers to buy more. They'll actually be excited by, the, by, by these low prices. And that will fuel him making money on volume rather than making money on a markup of an individual product. And, and that kind of it, it doesn't it doesn't sound like much because it's been so incorporated into retail, but that was an earth shattering idea at the time. He was a manager of, of a Kroger uh, chain and he took that idea to his bosses and said, hey, let's start a pilot chain with around this idea. And they shot him down. They said, absolutely not. That's crazy talk. Um, we want nothing to do with that. He quits. He goes. He opens up his own stores in Queens. Um but and that becomes the DNA that all supermarkets run on. That we, what we can do is make these stores bigger and bigger, save money on warehousing, save money on retail footprint, um, create more options, and then take that giant volume and shrink our margins down so that people see lower and lower prices and they stack up more and more goods in their cart. And the bigger the bigger the store gets, the more it's an attraction that people are going to want to go to see. And there's a real linear curve of, from that first supermarket, his first supermarket, by our standards, tiny, convenience store size, 9,000 square feet. Um, and then each year, as you mark march through the years the stores get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because that's the way the model worked in order to 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 make money who has the biggest stores in this business yeah uh you know they're the superstore models the costco superstores walmart superstores super centers those are the hundred and twenty thousand um skew stores they're a little bit out of favor at this point i think we've reached the limits of those um those physical size stores. Um, but they, yeah, Walmart super center. And, uh, that's, that's probably the biggest. And what's, who's making money off of this. And I know you talk in the book about the margin, explain what the margin mm -hmm. is and what is it and who's making the big money now? Yeah. Well, so a margin, so 
there's various ways you can make money off of a store. Uh, for instance, if we're just to break down, you know, the kind of traditional way that I think people think of the grocery store is you, ha- you buy an item from a manufacturer, there's some costs associated with the manufacturer making it, and then you put it on the shelf in your store and you slap 10% on top of whatever it is or 15% or whatever your margin is going to be, the difference between what you're selling it at and what you bought it from. And voila, you make your money off that difference. Um, so that's one model that you can use. Um, the Michael Cullen model is essentially we shrink that difference. So we're selling things very close to cost, but we're selling a whole lot more of them because one, food is very different from any other thing that that's being sold in stores and that we need to eat it. And so that there's, there's a continuous demand for it. Uh, and we'll actually stimulate demand by shrinking our costs down and people will buy more. So that, that's the kind of shift in t- when I talk about margin from, from a margin game to a volume game is just shrinking that margin down so people feel like they are getting a good deal. And when Michael Cullen's first stores, he didn't advertise for them at all. He just took out bro- or advertising in the traditional sense, I should say. He just took out broadsheets of newspaper and listed his prices. And that was it. And they were so different from the prices at a high, at a margin-based supermarket that people lost their mind. They drove for hundreds of miles just to, because they couldn't believe that someone was selling food this cheap. Um, I should say there's all sorts of different models now. Like Costco operates on a completely different basis. Costco is a membership-based club store. They're making their money not on the price that you pay for the food items, Um, they're making their money on the price you pay for the membership for the privilege of being able to go to a Costco. Uh, And that's where where almost all of their profits are being said and are are being taken. Um, And it allows them to offer like really low, extremely low margin, if to no margin uh, prices on their goods um, and still make quite a bit of money. And and then, you know, within that, even there's a a range of other models. What's the 1.5 average gross margin you're talking about in your book uh i think that's a stat that comes from looking across the industry as a whole i I should say grocery is an extremely opaque uh industry and so all of these stats especially the ones that are aggregate stats are very confusing and um and so when I talk to a lot of people who are quite skeptical of that number. That's a, maybe an industry-provided number, um, which would refer to just like the – you look across all their offerings, this is this is the margin that they're marking them up, which 1.5%, very low. Um, you know, you, it's hard to imagine making money. You have to sell a ton of volume to make a decent money on that margin. Um, but – Again, to go back to that, like Costco has created a membership version. Uh, there's d- different ways of juicing your margins. Uh, most grocery stores of the day, although not exclusively, now also have a profit center in the way that they are getting money from manufacturers. So they they might be selling a low margin good to a consumer at one point, you know, at a, at a very low margin, like that one point five percent across across the floor. Um, but they're also going to their manufacturers and demanding money from them for the right to put it on their shelf. Uh, and so they're a, a big profit center for grocery. And some people will, will argue that it's it's a 
the most meaningful profit center for many grocery stores is is not the price that consumers are paying, but the price that they're charging manufacturers for the right to get food on their shelf. Um, and this has ripple effects. It just changes the model. So we're dully aware of this. I think it's uh, when Coca-Cola pays for one of those big end caps where they're stacked the Coke bottles up and then make a big prominent display. You're aware that, that, that the store isn't doing that out of the goodness of the heart and, and Coke Coca-Cola is probably paying for that placement or, or whoever is paying for that display. Um, that's an end cap. So we, we understand that every inch of most grocery stores is for sale um, and for quite high numbers for some places like the frozen food item where there's a real scarcity of um, spots because these are freezers, they're high costs, get things in there. It's extremely millions of dollars to get a skew on a national uh, level, you, you'll have to pay as a manufacturer to get your product in there. Define the word SKU, SKU. Yes, it's a stock keeping unit. Um, and it is uh, the way, word we would use for like an individual item on a shelf. So you you would have a, a, a skew is like you have a yogurt, vanilla yogurt by Dannon, and then you would also have the small size of that. Uh, the medium size, you would have the 2%, the whole fat, the fat-free. All of those are separate SKUs. Um, so, so yogurt as a category exists as a category. Then yogurt as an item, the vanilla yogurt exists as an item. But then the SKU level is really the individuated products on the shelf that you might encounter. I want to ask you, though, about your experience when even today when you walk up to the fish part of a grocery store and you look at the counter, you see the fish in there and also the meat next to it. What was your experience with fish? Sure. So part of the book, I, I worked at a Whole Foods as a fishmonger, um, got a job. Uh, and I should say I didn't do this because I thought it would give me some like special insight into the, the world of retail Food. I, I just thought, of how could I write a book about groceries and not work the retail floor for for a second? Um, I just needed that physical experience. Um, I part of that, of course, was selling lots of fish and dealing with lots of fish. Um, so, I, you know, I have lots of thoughts when I when I when I, when I go to the fish counter. One is that just how magical the human ability is to weigh. Uh, and and estimate the weight of fish without that scale. Um, that was probably the the most lasting impression I got was that you know customers will come up and ask you for a half pound of salmon, and you know it is amazing how quickly and intuitively you learn what a half cut of salmon looks like, whether it's from the thick end or the thin end. Like there's just this human capacity to to estimate volume and and weight by sight that I found fascinating. Um, you don't screw it up as nearly as often as you you'd think. Um, I also, of course, saw the dark side of this, and the book opens with a description of the Whole Foods fish counter um, at a moment when it hadn't been cleaned regularly. Um, this was, you know, my firsthand experience working at that Whole Foods uh, that the fish stand made of like packed ice, and the fish on the top of the ice would over the course of the month or sometimes month and a half, sometimes two months between cleaning, um, would kind of sift down through that ice and collect at the bottom in this kind of gutter of seaweed. Uh, and to me, um, 
that is probably very specific to the store I was working at, but it was the most powerful metaphor I could think of for the industry as a whole, which is to say this, the fish on the top of the ice was pristine, whole foods quality, um, top of the line, smelled fresh, which is to say it didn't have a smell. Uh, and then there was this buffer of all these things that was keeping the bottom of that stand from out of sight, out of mind. And when you looked at the bottom of that stand, when you would clean it in that in that monthly clean or that one and a half monthly clean, it was just repugnant. It was just a uh, uh, rotten, horrible smelling fish that was just kept out of the consumer's eye. Uh, to me, that is the grocery store. There is a there is a consumer experience, and then there's layers of the supply chain that buffer us from the work that people like Lynn Riles are doing in their truck, and, and people uh, all across manufacturing centers, especially, and it gets worse the farther you get away from America and American labor standards into outsourced labor. Um, are doing and some of the practices there are, are just as repugnant as the bottom of that fish stand. You say that the agriculture laws have created a secrecy around people mm. that deal with grocery stores. Why is that? Explain that. Well, yeah, I'm not even sure I would put pin it on the agricultural laws precisely. It's well, there's two things. One, there has been a lot of healthy criticism of food in our our country uh by the press uh and i think the food industry especially big big food feels pretty gun shy they they feel like um there's a level by which people kind of want their cake and eat it too to take that metaphor literally they they want the products of a efficient agricultural system they want the prices they want the efficiency they want the availability uh and they also want a level of quality, a level of um, environmentalism that isn't compatible with those virtues. That you, you can't you can't have a immediate on demand rock bottom prices and like those rock bottom prices got to come from somewhere. Uh, and I think the industry feels extremely gun shy from from people who are kind of criticizing them on both ends of that spectrum. And so. Uh, there's just a wariness to talking about the details of the industry with people from the press because they they tend to believe the only stories that sell are the stories that are going to demonize them. Um, I tend to think that there's a lot of truth to that, and they have there is a lot of demonizing of our food because we don't want to grapple with the contradictory impulses that we have as consumers, um, and it's easier to blame somebody else for those contradictory impulses rather than sit with them ourselves. So I have a lot of sympathy for the industry there. There's also a lot of secrecy um, because of those low margins and in a, a highly competitive industry, there are real trade secrets. Uh, there are products that become best sellers because they have something that the adjacent product on the shelf doesn't have, and you don't want to let anyone know about that. There are models for how the grocery store operates that allow the store to, to create low margins that you don't want to let anyone else know about because that's where your competitive edge gets. That lets you cut your can of beans down, um, you know, point half a cent. Um, and it's because of the way that you uh, bring your manufacturers into the store and, and kind of like per, I'm just hypothetically saying like, oh, you, you lump all their loads onto one thing and, and you limit the number of suppliers that are coming into the store. So you 
use less employee time to unload the truck. That doesn't sound like a trade secret, but if that's saving you a half cent on, you know, on, on the items on that truck, then that becomes a trade secret and you just don't really want to talk about it. And then there are the trade secrets that happen in negotiations with with manufacturers, um, which is an extremely opaque thing where you're kind of narrowing in on what a fair price for something where there is no kind of objective number there. It's all, um, you're, you're kind of figuring out what people will pay and you're figuring out what your margins can be. You're figuring out what they could pay you for that trade spend or that slotting fees for the, the price on the shelf. All of that is, 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 is murky and um, not super publicly discussed and it's, it's highly proprietary. So, so the industry is extremely shy about talking about things and, and it, it it was very difficult to get people to open up on the record about this. Um, Got some you know, uh, I, personal questions. People, when they found out I was going to interview, they said, ask him this, ask him this. I'm going to ask you a couple of these. One is people think that fish today is not fresh. It's frozen and then put in to the grocery store. And secondly, why doesn't produce last as long as it used to? And I'm an old timer. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are good real questions and I and there's a real answers to both of them. Um and one, I can tell you we spent a lot of time at the Whole Foods fish market thawing fish so it would come frozen and then we would sit put it in a sink in the back, thaw it out and put it back put it on the ice so it looked fresh. I, there was no duplicity in this on the level of the signage. The signage would 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 wouldn't say it was fresh. This was not uh, there's there's no duplicity on the part of Whole Foods, but there was a willingness. The consumer might see this thawed fish, see the you know that it came from a farm, uh, and, and they might be willing to overlook the fact that it was frozen because it was now thawed out and maybe pay a higher price for it. Um, but yeah, we spent a lot of time thawing frozen fish. I think. Yeah, there's been big advances in freezing technology that, uh, especially f- fish that is frozen on a boat. Um, you know, there are places where where I, I think that fr- the frozen fish of my youth, <laughs> which is, you know, say thirty years ago, is different than the the frozen fish of today. It's it's just frozen closer to catch. Um, it's shrink, you know, it's flash frozen. The materials that preserve it are a little better. Um, that said, fresh fish is, is is obviously preferable. It's just it's just more expensive and harder to handle. What about um, produce? produce? Yeah, produce. So one of the big reasons, and this was a surprise to me. Um, so when you think about produce going bad, it, all produce is going to go bad. And there's been tremendous advantage, advances in storing produce. So from a practical manner of like how long can we now keep avocado or banana or a tomato fresh from when you were a kid from when i was a kid even uh those the absolute number has is stretched farther and farther out like we have now ways of creating uh you know Packaging that has stabilizing gases in it and regulate the ethylene contents, which is like how a, a hormone that a fruit hormone that is involved with ripening. Tremendous advances in this, but at the same time, stores have realized that they can sell produce. They can buy produce that is close to the expiration date 
and it's called short coding it, um, where they kind of count on the volume of their customers buying and, and uh, buying their food uh, and kind of going through, turning over their internal inventory quickly. Um, so they buy food that is closer. They're cutting it close. They're just shaving their margins down in a way that, that wasn't true um, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the the you might give, have an industry standard of two weeks for this head of lettuce that you want, or lettuce would be less than that. But, you know, you say you'd, you'd, you'd buy your food and have a comfortable two week window where you could sit around in your internal fridges and freezers before you brought it out. And, and now by negotiating with the manufacturers, the warehouses to get food that's closer to expiration. So maybe it's only got three days left at, you're pricing it so that you think your customers will buy it off the shelf uh, in those three days. Uh, the customer experience might not be changed by this, right? They're, you're, they're still get you're, you're saving some time, um, but the but the, the, the customer should still have a good week with it. Um, that kind of narrowing down that sh- it's called short coding of the the produce produces a a lot of room for error. And so when you're bringing in like that, that works great if everything goes perfectly. But if one crate gets misplaced or the, the guys in the back uh, bring up the wrong section first of the, of that produce, then because it's so much closer to expiration, somebody might walk home with something that's way close to expiration as a, they won't get that week of, of home life. And so the customer experience will be much spottier when there's, when there's mess ups. Which book of Sorry. yours, the first one. Very long winded no, answer. Okay. But which book of yours, you had a book on yoga. Yes. And then this book, which one did the best in sales? Uh, I, this book seems like it's, 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 uh, it's doing pretty well in terms of sales. Um, you know, they're both, they're, they both did well. They both sold through their advance, which is, it's always nice as a, a nonfiction writer. Um, and, uh, they're just very different books. Um, so I, the, the yoga book had a tremendous impact, real world impact on that community. You know, it, it, it helped pave the way for real reforms. It, it kind of broke the first stories of um, sexual abuse and uh, abu- abuse of practices and the, that yoga community. Uh, when the book came out, um, none of the women would go on record. A few months later, women were coming forward and speaking openly. Um, and, you know, I, I really think it got the ball rolling in that community. So I don't judge its success solely on the sales number. It was one of those things where I really felt like, oh, this this had an impact on the world in a in a in a in a real meaningful way. And the grocery book, I can't. It, it, it's much more descriptive. It's not prescriptive. There's no good guys. There's no bad guys. Um, and so whatever its impact is is maybe making a few light bulbs go off in our brains, and we can be a little bit more grateful about the world we live in and the, the kind of deals that we're getting, and a little bit more horrified about the ways that we participate in things we don't like. Um, but its sales have been certainly better. What's your background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Uh, I'm out of Maryland, inside the Beltway, uh, Maryland. So right pushed up against D.C., um, Silver Spring, for people who are in the know. 
uh, a lovely, lovely community. Um, I grew that was, I grew up with a kind of a fond view of the suburbs. It was quite economically diverse, culturally diverse. Uh, public schools there uh, went off to Columbia, where I was a bio major, environmental biology, and creative writing as a as a side. Uh, I always thought that I could learn all the the great read all. Wanted to do science because I thought that was something that. You know, I could really leverage a university education for and and the writing stuff was such a personal passion that I would cover for it. I'm not sure if that's true. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of great books that I'm missing because that I would have would have loved to, to read in college. What book are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a project that tangentially touches the healthcare system. I'm not talking about it too much, but uh it's to me it's a very lot I, I i'll say this i wanted to write the last two books are kind of dismal in ways one that deals with a megalomaniacal pathologically lying guru who's extremely manipulative in the grocery industry um when you get to the bottom of that supply chain and you see some of the human misery involved i found some of those sections really hard um and so this book i promised myself i wanted to write something that would have some comedy, some uplift, uh, and it ended up that a core theme of the book is death. Um, so there, there is uh, a, a, it's a it's a kind of a counterintuitive take on on, on dying in America um, that I that I hope will work, but I'm still working out the details. Were you talk when you talk about the the lower end of all this? Are you talking about your trip to Thailand and the whole business yeah, of what you well, saw there? Not just that, but but I think that the trucking section with with Lynn, um, but yes, certainly Thailand. Um, what about I use what Thai- about shrimp? What about uh, Thai shrimp? What, what's the story behind all that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I use Thai shrimp as kind of a microcosm for the way bottom of the supply chain and these these areas of supply chain where the word supply chain becomes misleading. Like you might picture a supply chain with a kind of a Venn, not a Venn diagram, sorry, a flow chart with little boxes and arrows. And you get buy this from this person, this person, you go into Thailand and the Thai seafood supply chain. And what you see is shrimp is sourced from thousands of smallholder um, farms or, or farmers. The food, the inputs to those farms are sourced from tens of thousands smallholder boats that are operating. Um, the aquaculture pyramid for food is, is, is shrimp are carnivorous. Uh, almost all uh, aquaculture fish that are grown are carnivorous. So they, you need to get fish to feed these shrimp, even if you're growing them on land. Um, and so that supply chain is extremely dense. Um, it's extremely distant from the buyers, uh, the Western buyers. Western buyers don't speak the language. Um, it's very competitive. There's, you know, deals, again, with razor sharp efficiency. And so everybody is jockeying in, in a race to the bottom to get this lowest price. And it creates a, a place where in that dense supply chain, where there's very little visibility to know, um, to, to kind of trace a product through to the end where people can get a, a concrete margin by or a, a concrete advantage by cheating their employees, by, 
in, in the case of Thailand, there's a lot of brokered labor of in basically a modern day slavery indentured servitude where people are working for no wages, um, much less low wages for years at a time. And it's, it's, uh, it's quite hidden. It's, um, even as nobody in the system wants it, it's very hard to root out. Um, and so kind of exploring the ways that something like that can persist in the year 2023 when there's no one from the executives at these firms to the brokers to the buyers wants it to exist. So something so horrible as, as, as actual slavery where, where a man is like imprisoned on a boat, beaten, forced to work, um, how does that exist within this system when there are many good actors trying to root it out? Um, was kind of the question I walked into Thailand. Do with. we eat Thai shrimp here? Oh, absolutely. Thai was our, when I was writing, I think Thailand was our number two supplier. Um, and, and, and the one that we were close, China was number one, but we were the most closely networked with Thailand, had the longest standing relationships with Thailand. Um, you know, the Thai shrimp story has made a big splash in many ways. Uh, the industry has walked away from Thai shrimp because um, of, of all the, the negative reporting of part of which I'm somewhat responsible for. Um, and I think that's kind of the wrong reaction to this, that what Thailand was not unique in a way. And the, the what was um, unique is that it got uncovered in Thailand. What it was unique is that the press got a hold of it and, and there's a long backstory of going to a small portion of, of how it got uncovered in Thailand a, a mixture of a billionaire pouring in lots of resources and small NGOs on the ground um, kind of getting empowered but those practices are going to follow the industry wherever the industry moves and so simply by not buying Thai shrimp you're not avoiding those practices, even though you are avoiding the, the stigma in the press headings. And it becomes a very difficult thing. And I, I people ask me constantly, oh, do you eat shrimp? Do you eat Thai shrimp? Um, and I do eat Thai shrimp. And I do eat shrimp in general, because I don't think that the reaction of, of if I was just to say, oh, no, I don't eat Thai shrimp, I now eat Indian shrimp, that, that's really doing nothing to solve the, the fundamental issues that the book is, is probing. Um, it is uh, simply shifting them to a place where it is again out of sight, where again we don't have visibility. Um, and that to me is the wrong, you know, that's a, a hypocritical answer. We haven't talked much about it, but people ought to know in your book you talk about Aldi's, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, Costco, uh, on and on. But I, I have to tell you, I want to go back to Lynn Riles. <laughs> I just found that, first of all, hard to believe that somebody makes less than $20,000 and keeps at it. But you also describe that she lives on six, a six pack, six pack of Pepsis all day and smokes two packs of cigarettes. By the way, how old is she? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't want to get her age wrong. She, I mean, she's not elderly. Let's put it that way. She's probably a few years older than I am. I'm 44. Um, but I don't, I don't know. So I don't want to. How long wanna, has she been doing the truck? How long has she been driving a truck? Oh, I, you know, there's probably a, a specific answer in the book, like a because. Of, but I, uh, but certainly, she's she's a veteran trucker. Ten years, I, I would imagine. Um, now, one of the other things that she talked about was the truck stop. 
And I remember yes. you saying at one point you looked up and there were 180 cabs sitting in this truck stop. Do you remember where that was? Oh, God. Well, that's not an uncommon where that was probably in Iowa, but that's not an uncommon number. I mean, there is a the trucking industry is a jargon. Like I said, majority employer, uh, largest employer in the majority of states. Uh, it's just kind of one of these things that's out of sight, out of mind. One, a lot of it happens at night because the so truckers are descend on the roads at night when we're not necessarily on the roads um, and, and they they don't work nine to five hours but there's a massive trucking infrastructure in this country and um often there are rest stops that cater to both truckers and cars but then there are just trucker rest stops that you wouldn't go to if you're just driving your car um and you certainly wouldn't go to the the truck lot portion of that um and and they have churches barber shops gyms tattoo parlors um, like, you know, where we might have like a Roy Rogers and a, a, a gas station kind of food. Like they, these are places where truckers congregate TV rooms that kind of look like waiting rooms for the doctor where, where truckers could take a load off and sit and watch the, the news. Um, do they, yeah, do they, the truckers sleep in their cabs at the truck stop? Oh, yes, almost exclusively. You wouldn't have the, the money to be able to pay for something else. Um, th- there might be a hotel at the truck stop, but the trucker wouldn't be using that hotel. Um, th- their margins are so tight, they, they, they sleep in their cab because that's the same thing. And I should say they don't sleep sitting up in, in the chair. Right behind the chairs in a trucking cab or, is, is a bed. Um, and if you're driving team, which would be driving with another person, there's bunk beds um, stacked on top of each other. And so you'd be sleeping back there. But it's it's a basically a cot. It's not we're not talking luxury accommodations. And if you're driving team, which means that one person's driving, the other person's sleeping, you're sleeping on the bumpy open road in that cot. And that, that that's pretty hard to do. Um, they're certainly not super pleasant. And then you're stopping, maybe getting a bite to eat and switching off. And the person who was driving is now sleeping and the person who was sleeping is now driving. And you can see the advantages from the trucking carrier's perspective. You've got something that was went from, um, you know, 80 hour work week caps to something that is basically can, can go uh, round the clock because you're cycling workers. But you could also see from the point of view of the trucker that that could be a fairly hellish existence, especially if you're trapped in a truck with someone you don't like who's slowly losing their mind or sexually harassing you. What's the number of hours that you can work straight through if you're a driver? Oh, I, you know, I don't want to get these things wrong. It's, I, um, But I, it's 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 like 72 hours or 80 hours is, is, it strikes me as, as, as close to the number. But I mean, on a given time, didn't I remember 14 hours or something like that? Oh, in the book oh I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. There, there's like a, a clock that goes for like a week. Uh, and so you, you both have a daily clock and a weekly clock. Um, and so both of those are kind of operating at the same time. And uh, to maximize, you have to maximize both of those. But who, yeah, who's, regula- uh, who's regulating that? And who uh, who knows what Lynn Riles is doing out there on the road? That's a good, I mean, the Department of Transportation, uh, I think, is directly regulating it. I do know that, like, the FTC has been looking into, um, the Federal Trade Commission is looking into some of the carriers and to seeing to what extent there may be collusive practices there. 
um, that I don't know to what extent those investigations are ongoing or still happening. I know that they, they were peeking into it though. Um, uh, you know, have you, did you uh, notice, and we're about out of time, but did you notice when you were out there on that truck, uh, and stopping and all, did you notice a politics coming from the, oh, the drivers? Yes. <laughs> oh yes. And you know, I cut it out of the book because so I was writing this and, 215 pre during Trump's run up and I was coming from Brooklyn and I kind of came with all my Brooklyn biases and Brooklyn bubble of uh, thinking oh Trump you know reality TV star doesn't have much of a chance at that point he was very much outside of the Republican mainstream if you can think back to those early debates right where where the, the rest of the party was kind of laughing at him and I could tell you that was an eye opening. I came back from that being like, well, this guy, he's a very good chance he's going to win the whole thing um, because the excitement that the trucking community was talking about him, the ways that they were glued into the right wing radio uh, airwaves was was, uh, again, post Trump. A lot of these stories have been covered. And that's why I took that out of the book. I was like, oh, I don't want to be rehashing some blue collar um right wing take but that was my lived experience was was that take directly um you know the truckers would sit around and rehash stories that they had heard online uh or or heard on the radio and swap them between themselves uh, and some of them were almost so cliche that I found it hard to like i didn't know how to write about them without making them sound cliche but like i don't know if you remember the ronald reagan welfare queen um fur coat story right this is like an apocryphal story from the 80s maybe it's real who knows but it's it's kind of been passed around a lot i heard people retelling that story in the year 2015 updated but but still a welfare queen with a fur coat who's going eating off of you know food stamps and uh living high on the hog and it it, it just it was pretty remarkable it was a, a core part of that community uh or the community that i was you know again trucking is a vast thing but the community that lynn was part of um it certainly um was was really was really ballyhooed around and uh yeah, it was it was really difficult, and and it was hard to know what to write about without. Um, I did I didn't want that to become the main show when there was a different story of the kind of ways that this the trucker had like the story of the commoditization of trucking, the story of deregulation of trucking, and the ways that the carriers have proliferated and that has turned the trucker into this disposable part. To me, that was the the key that I wanted to to make for this book. But all the political stuff was happening in the background and it was a really interesting moment. Um, So, yeah. The name of the book is The Secret Life of Groceries. The subtitle is The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket. And our guest has been Benjamin Lohr. And we thank you very much for your time and your book. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really grateful uh, to be on. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. 
questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.